the land of beginning again. I wish that there were some wonderful place in the land of beginning again where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all of our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never put on again. I wish we could come on it all unawares, like the hunter who finds a lost trail. And I wish that the one whom our blindness has done the greatest injustice of all could be there at the gates, like an old friend that waits for the comrade he's gladdest to hail. We would find all the things we intended to do, but forgot and remembered too late. Little praises unspoken, little promises broken, and all the thousand and one little duties neglected that might have perfected the day for one less fortunate. It wouldn't be possible not to be kind in the land of beginning again. And the ones we misjudged and the ones whom we grudged, their moments of victory here would find in the grasp of our loving hand clasp more than penitent lips can explain. So I wish there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all of our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never put on again. Powwow at the End of the World by Sherman Alexie. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall. After an Indian woman puts her shoulder to the Grand Coulee Dam and topples it, I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall after the floodwaters burst each successive dam downriver from the Grand Coulee. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after the floodwaters find their way to the mouth of the Columbia as it enters the Pacific and causes it all to rise. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after the first drop of the floodwater is swallowed by that salmon waiting in the Pacific. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after that salmon swims upstream through the mouth of the Columbia and then past the flooded cities, broken dams, and abandoned reactors at Hanford. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after that salmon swims through the mouth of the Spokane River as it meets the Columbia, then upstream until it arrives in the shallows of a secret bay on the reservation where I wait alone. 
I am told by many of you that I must forgive. And so I shall. After that salmon leaps into the night, air above the water and throws a lightning bolt at the brush near my feet and starts the fire which will lead all of the lost Indians home. I am told by many of you that I must forgive and so I shall. After we Indians have gathered around the fire with that salmon who has three stories it must tell before sunrise. One story will teach us how to pray. Another story will make us laugh for hours. And the third story will give us reason to dance. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall. When I am dancing with my tribe during the powwow, at the end of the world. We return again and again by Leslie Takahashi. We return again and again to this season of forgiveness, and each time we come, we come bearing gifts a grudge to relinquish, a hatred to extinguish, a hope that has bloated and distorted, a glancing word that has wounded. Each time we walk the road towards forgiveness, we mutter that we have been here before. When will we remember that forgiveness is not so much an act as an attitude not so much a duty as a love we give ourselves, as a part of the ever-unfolding new beginning. So as I begin to preach today, I want to let you all know that I will be talking some about sexual assault and sexual harassment. Won't be going into details, just acknowledging the existence and the headlines. But I know that experience is the experience of many people in this room. And so I invite you to take care of yourself in whatever way you need to do today. Once upon a time, a stranger arrives in a town. It is an unusual town. Every person carries a large bundle on his or her or their back. The traveler is puzzled. He watches the people for a while, and he notices that they always wear these bundles, no matter what they are doing, and every person has one. He decides to ask about this strange habit. 
he stops a young man and says, my good man, I am a stranger to your land and am fascinated by these large bundles you all carry about, but never seem to put down. What is their purpose? These are our grudges, says the young man, matter-of-factly. Why, those are a lot of grudges for a young man to have, the traveler says. Oh, they are not all mine. Most are family heirlooms. <laughs> See that man over there? I have quite a lot of grudges against his family. His great-great-grandfather called mine a horse thief when they were both running for mayor. The traveler says, you all look so unhappy. Is there no way to get rid of these burdens? The young man responds, we've forgotten how. You see, at first, we were proud of these grudges. Tourists came from miles around. But after a few years, this became a dreary place. Nobody came, and we had forgotten how to stop holding our grudges. If you really want to get rid of these grudges, the traveler says, I know five magic words that will do the trick. You do, the young man says. That would be wonderful. And he runs off to gather all of the people of the village together. And it takes them a while because of the heavy burdens they're all carrying. But they finally all come together. The traveler addresses the crowd. He says, my friends, these are simple words, yet some people find them hard to say. The trick is you must say them to each other and truly mean them. The first two words are, I'm sorry. The other three are, I forgive you. Can you say that? Now say these words to each other. There is a long pause. People aren't quite sure if they can mean these words. And then there's a quiet murmur as people start saying these magic words to one another, meaning them. And as the spoken apologies and offers of forgiveness grow louder and louder, the bundles of grudges grow smaller and smaller until they finally disappear. Freed of these heavy burdens, people are able to straighten their backs and look one another in the eye again for the first time in a long time. The traveler overhears people saying things like, Look how those trees have grown. And Jim, it is so good to see your face again. So goes the story, What If No One Forgave, by Barbara Marshman. It's one of my favorites. But we know that things aren't always as simple as the story would have us believe. We know that an apology, no matter how sincerely felt, is not always enough to make things right. When real harm has been done, it takes action over time before repentance is earned, if it ever is. And we also know that grudges can burden us, limit us, and harm us. Had the village in the story been a predominantly Jewish village, 
an observant, predominantly Jewish village, the grudges never would have gotten this far, this big, this backbreaking. In the Jewish tradition, which is what we are exploring this month here at the church, there's a time, to set, there's a time set aside every fall to let go of grudges, offer and receive forgiveness, and make things right. The Jewish New Year is marked in the fall, sometime in September or October, on a date that follows the lunar calendar. Rosh Hashanah is the new year, and it's followed by 10 days of repentance, and then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. These are the holiest days in the Jewish calendar, often called the High Holy Days. They are solemn days, days to review the previous year and make amends. One of the legends associated with this season says that God has two books, the book of days and the book of life. The book of days has a page for each person, and it's written out like a ledger with the good deeds on one column and the sins in the other. The book of life says what will happen to each person in the coming year. Rosh Hashanah, New Year's Day, is a day of judgment. So on this day, God reviews the ledgers one by one with Satan acting as the prosecuting attorney and an angel arguing for the person's defense. The few people whose good deeds overwhelmingly outweigh their bad deeds are written into the book of life right away and will have good things happen to them in the coming year. The people whose bad deeds overwhelmingly outweigh their good deeds are written into a different section of the book of life and have misfortune awaiting them in the year ahead. But that leaves most people not written into the book of life yet. Most people are somewhere in the middle with a mix of good and bad in their ledger. So God decides to withhold judgment and give humanity a little more time to set things right. If the person repents during the days of repentance that begin the year, God wipes away all the misdeeds and writes their name in the good section of the Book of Life. And on Yom Kippur, the Book of Life is closed, but God still waits about another 15 days before sealing the book for the year, just in case any stragglers want to repent, make things right, and get their names added to the good section of the Book of Life. For observant Jews, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is a solemn holiday. People marking the day fast for 24 hours, consuming no food or water from sunset to sunset. Much of the day is spent in religious services, with extra prayers added especially for the day. The first religious service, which happens in the evening, includes a prayer asking God to absolve people from the vows they were unable to fulfill. What vows might you need to be released from in this season? And other services, the community as a whole repents for the sins of all. People are encouraged to review their lives individually as well and repent the specific wrongs that he or she or they committed And as the year gets underway, I think it's valuable to take some time to think about if there are things that we need to make right 
We obviously follow a different calendar than the one that the Jewish community uses for religious observance. But I like the idea of a season at the beginning of the year for setting things right. Looking over the past year, examining the good deeds and the bad deeds, and taking the action we need to, to live with integrity and right relations and according to the values we say we hold. Taking a moral inventory, offering apologies for our shortcomings, and doing what can be done to make things right is an important part of the life of faith, an important part of the religious life, the life of integrity, whatever set of words you want to put there, the life of meaning, the life of joy. We all mess up. We all make mistakes, hurt people, fall short of our aspirations. And when that happens, we are called to make it right. The Jewish tradition offers us resources for how to do this, techniques like the magic words in the story that will lighten our metaphorical load. The Hebrew word for repentance is teshuva, and literally it means turning. I love the metaphor in that. Repentance is turning ourselves away from previous actions, turning ourselves toward God or sources of meaning and strength, turning ourselves toward a new way. And one of the best introductory books on Judaism, Stephen M. Weiland explains three stages of teshuva. First, a person must admit to having done wrong. It is possible to find all kinds of justifications for our misdeeds, to excuse them or explain them away or to blame them on someone else. Teshuva requires that one admit that his misdeeds were simply wrong. They should not have been done. The second stage of teshuva is to be truly sorry for the wrongs one has committed. This does not automatically follow from the first stage. One may be glad to have committed a wrong. One may confess, I did it and I would do it again. Teshuva requires that one be filled with regret for having done wrong. The third stage of teshuva is to vow never to repeat the misdeed. This stage is also very difficult. Even if a person deeply regrets having committed a sin, the memory of the pleasure or the gain which that sin brought might cause him to reserve himself the option of repeating it at some future time. If one has sinned against another person, Wyland continues, one is required to make restitution, if at all possible. One must seek the forgiveness of those who have been wronged. It's a simple formula. Admit wrongdoing, be truly sorry, don't do it again, make restitution, seek forgiveness. But we all know it is hard to live by. I've been teaching my toddler about saying sorry. And it's really hard because you don't want to teach a kid they're supposed to say it just to make things right. You want them to feel it. And I don't know how to do that well yet, but we are learning every day. 
And we know that wisdom about repentance and making things right is shared across many traditions. We all need that way to name our mistakes, move forward toward right relations. And one place where the steps of teshuva are echoed is in the 12 steps that help so many lead lives of integrity and recovery. They were first used by alcoholics, but now many with behaviors they struggle to control find strength in 12-step programs. Step four, make a, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Step 10, continued to take a personal moral inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Over the last months, calls for repentance, for teshuva, for turning to a new way have filled our headlines, our social media feeds, and our hearts. The Me Too movement, which was energized by reporting about Hollywood executive Harvey Weinstein, published in October, has led women and others to tell their stories about sexual harassment and sexual assault. Many in this congregation have told stories. We have remembered hard experiences we lived through, we witnessed, or we supported loved ones through. We have seen powerful men in politics, media, the arts, and so many other areas lose respect and their jobs after their misdeeds became widely known. Many of us have had personal heroes brought low and had to rethink our opinions of people we had previously admired. We have told our stories. We have participated in conversations about what it might look like to hold people accountable for sexual assault and sexual harassment. And we have heard some terrible apologies. Apologies that likely with the assistance of public relations people and lawyers are not apologies at all. I'm sorry if you were hurt. I regret my actions and I don't remember those incidents. I believed it was consensual despite the power difference. And my personal least favorite, the apology from Mario Batali after sexual assault allegations lost him some of his jobs. The apology contained a recipe for cinnamon rolls. And there's nothing about that that leads one to believe that there's actually repentance in that if you're continuing to promote yourself in your apology. There's a, a website that a friend sent me this week called The Apology Generator, and it is just sort of cut and pasted versions of all of these, and it's hilarious and terrible. Apologies are surprisingly difficult to do well. But the Jewish tradition offers a simple recipe. I did something wrong. I am truly sorry. I won't do it again. I will work to make it right. I ask for forgiveness. 
It is my hope that in the months and years ahead, some of the men who lost so much in this season will repent, will return, will make it right. I'm not sure what that looks like. Each of these men will have to find their own way toward integrity and right relations, if that is how they choose to turn. But in my most hopeful imaginings, they give significant time and money over the long term to efforts to support survivors of sexual violence and to stop violence. They engage in quiet, effective advocacy for pay equity or changing workplace cultures where harassment is rampant. They learn about consent and teach others. In short, they are transformed in some way. I hope that some of these men will show us a turning and will show all of us a path of repentance in the moments when we struggle to make things right after hurting someone. Perhaps such efforts will merit some sort of forgiveness over time by the people these men victimized. Perhaps that will never come. These past months, as new sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations arose almost daily, I've been repeating a piece of the Unitarian Universalist Association first principle, like a mantra to myself. Inherent worth and dignity, inherent worth and dignity, inherent worth and dignity. It has been a prayer and an aspiration for the women, gender non-conforming people, and men who are bravely telling their stories, I repeat, inherent worth and dignity, in the hope that they might know in their bones that their worth and dignity cannot be erased by the violations they have experienced, that they may always feel worthy of love and worthy of the justice that is their due and now that they are courageously seeking. For those accused of violence and harassment, I repeat, inherent worth and dignity, inherent worth and dignity, to remind myself that they are not monsters, but human, still worthy of love and care, even though they have caused such great pain. My repeated words remind me that our teaching is that everyone is worthy, no matter what, no exceptions. It is inherent. You cannot get rid of it. None of us are disposable. None of us are defined by the worst things we have done. And when I hear details of all of these violations, I struggle to remember this. I do hope that they turn, that they repent, that they make amends, and that they begin again in love. Our first principle is easy when it applies only to the people that we like. But that doesn't mean very much. We are called to infirm, affirm the inherent worth and dignity of all people, no matter what, no exceptions. And for me, I fear that this will be part of my spiritual work for my entire life, because I am not there yet. I want to be. But I know when I engage it, it is a life-giving and love-giving project. I invite you on this journey alongside me.